Give ear to the word of God. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to grope around in the dark to try to figure out who you are, the way of salvation and faith in Christ, or even how you would have us to live as your redeemed people. But you have revealed all these things to us, all things necessary for life and godliness. You have revealed to us in your word. Uh, And we know that on our own we are incapable of understanding these things rightly, so we pray that you would once again teach us by your Spirit, work in us by him, that we might have uh, be given eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Give us an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, even our church, even today, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, um, I already said this is the, uh, our text this morning is the last of those seven letters found in uh, chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches. Last week we looked at uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, and we saw that that was uh, the one church really uh, that received no word of rebuke from the Lord. You know, five of the seven churches received words of of rebuke and correction uh, from the risen Christ. Uh, Two don't, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Philadelphia only received words of commendation and exhortation to, to remain faithful as they had been doing. Jesus praises that church in in a mighty way. The church in Laodicea, as you just listened as we were reading, uh, however, is the exact opposite of that. It receives not just a little commendation and some rebuke, it receives no commendation at all. There's There's no hint of any kind of commendation or praise. They only receive uh, rebuke and and correction. And so in a lot of ways, you could say that the church in Laodicea, which wasn't far from Philadelphia, uh, was kind of the polar opposite of that church. These two churches, Laodicea and Philadelphia, are probably put side by side here in the, the text of Revelation, one after the other, uh, in order to highlight that contrast for us. I think we're supposed to read those two in, you know, kind of in one sitting often and be kind of shocked by the contrast that these two churches that are so close in proximity and probably were founded in relatively the same period of time uh, could be so different in so short of a time. And I think the text here is to not just highlight that contrast, but it's also, I think, to encourage us, you and I, 
as a church and as Christians to emulate the one, the church in Philadelphia, and to seek to avoid the shortcomings and sins of the other, the church in our text, the church in Laodicea. In fact, you know, when you think of these letters, the one that probably sticks in your mind the most is this one. It's probably this one. The church in Philadelphia, you might remember from last week, was told that, remember they, he said, you have little strength or little power that, that be, they were told by Christ that because of their faithfulness to his word and the Lord's name, even though they had little strength, that the Lord Jesus had set before them, what? An open door, back in verse 8, that no man can shut. And that door was, an, was an, a door of opportunity as to be witnesses for his glory and for the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, here in this letter, in Laodicea, on the other hand, they're told, not with these exact words, but they're told of a closed door. But Jesus isn't the one that closed the door. They were. And it wasn't a door of opportunity. It was a door, in a sense, it was kind of the front door of the church, so to speak. And who was on the outside of that door at this church? Jesus. Not a good thing for a church to have Jesus on the outside of the church door, knocking that he might be let in to have fellowship with them again. They couldn't be more different, these two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so this morning, the first thing we're going to see is uh, what he says about a lukewarm church. A lukewarm church. The church in Laodicea is mentioned, you might know, a, a number of times in the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. He mentions them a number of times there. In Colossians 2, verse 1, Paul tells the Colossians that the, that the Laodiceans had not seen him face to face that he had not ministered to them in person. And so we gather from that that we don't know who planted the church in Laodicea, but we know that it wasn't Paul. He didn't plant the church there. He wasn't the first one to preach the gospel there. He didn't minister there yet. As of when he wrote that letter to the Colossians, he hadn't yet ministered to Laodicea in person. He may have at some point after that. And yet even for all that, he was concerned for their well-being and their growth in the faith. In Colossians 4.16, this is what he says to the church at Colossae. He says, and when this letter, Colossians, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. You know, a lot of the the letters you have in in the New Testament, just like these kind of letters within a letter in the book of Revelation, they're they're what we call circular letters. That doesn't mean they were written on round paper. What it means is that they were passed around. In other words, they they were to be viewed as and were viewed as Scripture from the earliest days. And so the, the book of, of Ephesians was not just read in Ephesus. It was passed around and copied to the other churches as well as, as Scripture, as the Word of God to them. And, and so the Laodiceans, we gather, we assume, that at some point they received the letter that we look at as the book of Colossians and that the church in Colossae had read whatever the letter was that Paul had written to the church at Laodicea. Uh, some scholars actually speculate that the book of Ephesians might be that letter. Because in the original text, it doesn't say what the name of the church was. It was, it was, they were all circular letters, and so people assume it might have been that one that was written to them. I think it's probably likely that the Lord has not seen to preserve uh, that letter for us and to keep it uh, or include it in the canon of Scripture. We don't really know. But one thing we do know from that text in Colossians is that the, the uh, Laodicean church, in some way, whether in person or just by letter, they received 
instruction to build them up in the faith from the Apostle Paul himself. And so I think we have every reason to believe that the church in Laodicea started off well, and that they were at one time a spiritually healthy and vibrant church. That they started off well, they were healthy, they were vibrant, they believed the gospel sincerely, they had a life-changing experience of the gospel of God's grace. But over time, and you know, the timeline for the book of Revelation as far as when it was written, there's a little bit of, of disagreement on when exactly that may have been. Was it late, you know, in the 90s of the first century? Was it in the, the 60s or 70s? We don't really know. But whatever the case, we know that within about 40 years, you know, one generation, it doesn't take long, Something had changed in this church and changed for the worse. Uh, they had become a lukewarm church. What, what was the problem in the church in Laodicea? What, why did they receive rebuke? You notice that this, this short letter, if you remember all seven letters, if you've read them as we've gone through them or if you're familiar with them, uh, this letter says nothing about tolerating false teaching, as the other letters had said to the other churches sometimes. It says nothing about compromising with the world. It doesn't say anything about licentiousness or sexual immorality. It doesn't talk about forsaking one's first love, as as Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Those are things that, in the other letters, Jesus was very specific in his rebukes about to some of the other churches. But what was the problem in Laodicea? It doesn't say any of those things. You might sort of assume that there's some level of those things, but Jesus doesn't mention any of those things at all, quite quite the opposite. In fact, he has very specific things he has to tell them. Look at verses 15 to 16, where the Lord Jesus says to them, as he does to all the churches, I know your works. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth, or probably more literally, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So their problem, the great shortcoming and sin and shame of this church, was that they were lukewarm. And their lukewarmness was so severe it made Jesus want to spew or vomit them out of his mouth. That's the the picture he's painting here. Now, you know, it doesn't take uh, much experience in life. Now, there are some drinks that are meant to be uh, enjoyed hot or cold. I think people today have confused that. They drink cold coffee where they shouldn't, and they, you know... But, you know, coffee, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, in the morning I drink my coffee, and a lot of times I'll be reading, you know, if I'm studying the Bible or reading a book, and I get engrossed in my studies, and then I forget about my cup sitting there, and I'll take a sip, and it's not hot anymore. I don't know about you, but I don't just sit there and keep on drinking it as is. I either dump it out or chop it off or microwave it or something. Nobody wants to drink, if they're smart, if they're normal, cold coffee. Uh, and some of you must like cold coffee. Um, <laughs> nobody wants to drink, usually, unless you're a child, you know, lukewarm milk. If it's sitting out too long, you probably dump it out in a hurry. There's even, you know, think about alcoholic drinks or soda. You don't want to drink them hot unless you're weird and live in Europe. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody wants to drink things that have been sitting out at room temperature. It's not pleasant. You want it cold. You want your cold drinks cold, and you want your hot drinks hot. Uh, and yet... Uh, the, you know what does Jesus say about this church in Laodicea? They're like a, a they're like a lukewarm cup of coffee. It's gross. It's nothing he wants in his mouth. He's going to spit them out soon. Now we don't want to read too much into this analogy that Jesus uses. Some people have taken uh, every little detail of the text as kind of allegorical, and they say, "Oh, hot, hot means you're on fire for the Lord," and then cold 
means, I don't know, the opposite of that, as if Jesus would be okay with that, as, oh, well, you know, as long as you're cold and dead, that's okay. So either be cold and dead or be hot and, you know, fervent for the Lord. That's not uh, what he is saying here. Uh, Herman Hoeksema, another commentator on the book, I think helpfully points this out. He says, we must not attempt to find a spiritual signification or significance for every one of the terms employed in the figure, but rather understand the figure in its general meaning. And then it is plain that the Lord means to say, the, the church in Laodicea is so miserable that I cannot tolerate her anymore. I am about to reject her in disgust. It's, the, the overall point is very clear. We sometimes make it hard to, to understand by trying to read something into every little detail. The same advice he gives there about our text, I think, is also very helpful when it comes to understanding the book of Revelation in general, that we shouldn't try to turn it into an allegory and find different spiritual significance for every little detail given in all these different visions in the book, but we should seek to understand the general meaning or the big picture of what we're told in its pages. Don't lose the forest for the trees when you're reading the book of Revelation. That's where you get confused. That's where you get in trouble. If you keep that in mind, I think you will read the book of Revelation by yourself and with us together with, with great profitability for you and great encouragement in, in the faith. Well, what does a lukewarm church look like? That's helpful to know. We want to avoid that that condition. What does a lukewarm church look like? Look like what does it mean to be a lukewarm church? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us. Look at verse uh, seventeen. He says, "For you know, because he's connecting this to what he said in verse sixteen, you're lukewarm. Why? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked." So a lukewarm church in this case is a church that's content and complacent in their own attainments and resources. And because of that, what happens? They're apathetic about the Lord Jesus Christ himself, from whom they get all things, spiritually speaking. And notice something else. Notice how unself-aware this church was. How their own self-image was so different from how Christ the Lord himself viewed them. They're, they not only thought, but in some ways you get the impression from the way Jesus words this, it wasn't just their opinion, they boasted about themselves in some way. He doesn't just say, you think this. He says, you what? You say these things. You say that you're rich and prosperous and need nothing. And yet Jesus' estimation of this church is far different, isn't it? Have you ever, ever known somebody who was delusional about themselves in some way? You probably have. Maybe, maybe it's you and you don't realize it at this point. Uh, years ago, uh, we used to watch, I don't know if you've ever watched the TV show American Idol. We used to watch that back in the day. And part of the morbid enjoyment of that show, for me at least, that's one of my many character flaws, was that in the first couple episodes of the season, when they were kind of thinning the herd, what they would do is there would always be a handful of people that thought they were the next big thing. And they couldn't sing a lick. And so their friends and family were pushing them forward and telling them, oh, you're the next Elvis, you're the next, you know, whoever uh, you think of as a great singer. And they would come forward and they would sing and perform, uh, only to find out that they really couldn't sing and perform. And the audience at home, to most of us, you'd be watching it, and to you at home, it was painfully obvious, oh, no, you know, no, 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 stop, stop, you know, don't, this is not going to end well. You, you saw very quickly that they were delusional and they couldn't even carry a tune. 
And this wasn't going to end well, and so it was often left for the one person on the show I liked, Simon Cowell, uh, to kind of bluntly burst their bubble and send them on their way. He often said things like, oh, this is a bad karaoke. You know, he, he, he burst that bubble, ripped the Band-Aid off, whatever analogy you wanted to, to use, and it was very often a great shock for them. Sometimes they would argue with him. <laughs> oh, no, you expert in the music industry, I'm really, really a good singer, and you're just not understanding things, and, they, you know, it didn't, it didn't go well. Well, in a lot of ways, the Lord's message to the church in Laodicea must have been a great shock to them as well. When they had this read to them, you can imagine what they may have, have thought. This church, like many down through the centuries of church history, even like many today in our own day, saw themselves all wrong, didn't they? They thought they were this way, and Jesus says, no, 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 you've got it exactly backwards. You're the exact opposite of what you think you are. They had a faulty view of themselves. They thought they were rich and had it all, and they lacked nothing. And Jesus tells them what? They're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They picture a person like that. Like this, there's homeless, and then there's pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Like that's as wretched as it gets. And he says, guess what? That's you. That's you in your own way right now. And so we've seen the lukewarm church. The next thing we see is a loving rebuke. Look at verse nine, 19, rather. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. His rebuke and chastisement, uh, think about that. They're never, those things are never easy to hear. None of us like to hear rebukes and chastisements. Uh, But what does he say about the source of that rebuke and chastisement or the motivation behind it? Those whom I, what? Love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 3, 11 to 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Uh, why? For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so Jesus' rebuke, as difficult as it must have been to hear and to read, uh, was spoken to them out of love for them. It's because he cared for the church that he said what he said. That passage I just read from Proverbs 3 is also quoted at length in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 6, for good measure. The Bible repeats it twice. It must be awfully important. What a, think about the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ that he rebukes his children because he loves us. He loves us and wants what's best for us. That's, that's what any good parent does. A good parent at times has to chastise and rebuke and correct a child. Why? Because they don't love them? Because we do love them. And we want to keep them from going astray. We want to keep them from going in the direction they should not go. Rebukes from the Lord are evidence, not the opposite, they're the evidence of his great love and care for us. And so as the writer of Proverbs says, we have to be careful not to despise God's discipline or grow weary of his reproof because he intends these things for our good and they are tokens of his love and affection towards us and they are they may seem odd to us, but they're proofs that God delights in us and wants what's best for us. And notice the Lord's gracious words to this lukewarm church uh, are found throughout the midst of this rebuke. There, there's a lot of grace in this hard letter. There really is. If you, if you have your eyes to see it, there's a lot of grace and kindness in this 
in this letter, even in the rebuke. Look at verse 18. The Lord offers them this counsel. He tells them, what, in the previous verses, how bad things were for them. And then he says, I counsel you. He doesn't say, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. That's it. Goodbye. You know, he says, I counsel you what? To buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In other words, you're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. You don't have to be. And you can get all the things that solve those problems from me. You can come buy them from from me. He still offers grace to them. He's on the verge of spitting them out of his mouth, and yet he still is there offering grace to them. He's counseling them about the way to remedy their sad, miserable condition of lukewarmness. They were wretched, pitiable, poor, blinded, naked, but they could still be truly rich. They could still be clothed in white. They could still have sight. And notice where all those things are to be found. In him. He says, buy them from where? From me. Outside of Jesus Christ, all of us, every last one of us, is wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. On our own, outside of Christ, no matter how much money we may have, how well off we may be in terms of worldly things, we are the most miserable, pitiable creatures in existence, unable to see and find our way, naked and cold. But in Christ, by faith, we have all things in him. Our eyes are finally open to see Christ and see his glory, and we're clothed with the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only in him are those things to be found for us. This calls to mind an Old Testament passage. Today's, today's Isaiah Day. Everything's from Isaiah. But Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, where you read this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Why, the Lord says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." He says, come by, and, and with what? You who have no money. We don't. We have nothing to bring to God, to, to bargain with the Lord, to make us right with Him. And He says, it's all right. I know you're broke. I know you've got nothing. Come here and buy what you need. Things that actually satisfy, not the things that we often think satisfy and don't. Why do you spend your money for that which is not really bread? And labor for that which does not actually satisfy you. Have you come, have you come to Christ by faith? Have you found in Jesus Christ the living water and the bread of life? The real bread of life. Come to Christ and He will freely give you all those things by His grace. That's what He promises here in, in Isaiah and all through the scriptures. And Jesus calls this church and as in the church in every age in verse 19 to be zealous and repent. That's always the message to the church. That was the prophet's message in the Old Testament to Israel, and that's always God's message to his people in the church today. The the word for zeal there uh, comes from the same word that you look back at at verses 15 to 16, the same word for hot. Zeal and, and hot come from the same word. Zeal or being zealous has the idea of bringing water to a boil. 
And so at times for, you know, for churches and as well as individuals, repentance can be a matter of stirring ourselves up by the aid of the Holy Spirit that we once again might have our zeal renewed for Christ and for the glory of his name. This morning's sermon, or the, the scripture text we read from Isaiah 9, when it talked about this child is given, this son is given, uh, and, and the prince of peace and all of that, verse 7 of Isaiah 9 says, it kind of caps the whole thing off, the zeal, there's that word, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's almost as if the scripture is saying, God has been zealous for you by sending his only begotten son to die and to rise again on the third day to give you all things in him, and so be zealous for him. He has been zealous for us. Have you grown, have you grown complacent and lukewarm in your faith? Are you satisfied in your own attainments or resting? Are you resting on your laurels? Then Christ's gracious counsel to you is the same. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Well, the last thing in our text, we've seen a lukewarm church, a loving rebuke, and now we see a knock, a knock at the door. Jesus told the church in Philadelphia, he set before them an open door. Well, here, again, the picture is the exact opposite. It reveals something of the real dark picture of the true condition of this lukewarm church that Jesus addresses. He says in verses 20 to 21, Behold, you know, sit up and take notice. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me, the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's the maybe the worst part. Where is Jesus in this picture? What is the door and where is Christ in this picture? Where does it say he is when he's knocking? He's on the outside. He's on the outside of the church. That's the kind of church you don't want to be. Better to be small, weak, and poor as a church in the eyes of the world and be where Jesus is than to have it all like the Laodiceans did as the world measures things anyway, while lacking the presence of Christ in the midst and in their worship. Laodicea was a rich church, was the poorest little rich church in the history of the world. They had everything you could, they could ask for, but they didn't have Christ in their midst. He was outside of the door. You know, we sang this morning, uh, maybe my favorite uh, Christmas hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. And there's, there's a line that goes... Right along with our text, what does it say? Let every heart prepare him room. We sing that every Christmas probably more than once. Now this passage that we're looking at in this, these two verses, especially verse 20, is in a lot of ways one of those, uh, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that are classically misinterpreted over and over again and misused in many ways. And this one is often uh, misinterpreted, at least directly, as an evangelistic text. You might have heard this used by an evangelist to say, Jesus is standing outside of the door of your heart and knocking, asking to be let inside. And that, that's, that's not a, a bad thing in and of itself, but it's not from this text. It's you know the right doctrine from the wrong text, so to speak. It's also at times used and misused, I would say, and misinterpreted by those of an Arminian persuasion, you know, the free will uh, folks, as if it were kind of a proof text of sorts for the free will of man, as if Jesus is, you know, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings is standing there knocking with his hands tied. I know that's a terrible analogy, right? He's, he's knocking at the door as, as if his hands were tied, 
as if he were somehow helpless to save sinners on his own unless they decide all on their own to turn to him. This text teaches neither of those things. Uh, Herman Hoeksma again helpfully notes the following. He says, evidently Jesus is standing not at the door of the heart, but at the door of the church in Laodicea. The church had become unfaithful. That church had cast him out. That's really the effect of what he's saying here. You've, you know, not that they're sovereign over Jesus, but they had basically shown him the door. And by his grace, he doesn't just leave. He knocks at the door. Jesus in our text, though, he does address individuals within the church, doesn't he? So it's not entirely wrong in some regard to use this as kind of an evangelistic text. It's easy to see why people would do it. He, what does it say? He says that he stands at the door and knocks, and the knocking is present tense. It's He doesn't just walk up, knock once, hope nobody's home and walk away. He's knocking. He's knocking at, at the door. He doesn't just give up and knock. after knocking once. He stands there and he keeps on knocking. And to anyone who hears his voice and opens the door, he promises to enter in and even to share a meal with them. Think about it. as As hard as this letter is to read, and you can't even imagine putting yourself in the shoes of the church of Laodicea when they heard it read. But it's a beautiful picture of forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, and fellowship that's being offered here by Jesus Christ to this, this lukewarm church. This meal with Jesus that he's kind of hinting at here, it may even be hinting at the Lord's Supper, promising that he will once again be present in communion with his people at the Lord's table. He might even be hinting at that. And so what, what you think about is there's hope for the lukewarm church. There, there may come a point of no return, but there's hope for a lukewarm church. Jesus is willing yet to revive them by his grace, to renew their zeal for the glory of his grace, and even to restore their intimate fellowship with him. I mean, you don't eat meals with people, usually, that you're not close to. Jesus is offering to come in and have a meal with us. That's, that's what he's offering this church, this lukewarm Church, May the Lord Jesus Christ, as he calls himself, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, the source of all of God's creation, may he be pleased to guard us as a church and as individual believers and families from being self-satisfied in apathy and lukewarmness. And if we ever find ourselves as individuals or as a church in a lukewarm state, may he lovingly rebuke and revive us, that we might once again be zealous for the glory of his name and once again enjoy the infinite blessing of fellowship with him at his table. Amen. Let's let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you uh, sent your son to seek and save the lost. We thank you that he is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one that's astray. And we thank you that he does that, that you do that by your grace with individuals. You've done that with each of us. And you even do it for churches, Lord, that you are zealous for the glory of your name because you have accomplished our salvation by the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Lord. And we ask that you would work in us, as again, as individual believers and as a church, that we might have our zeal renewed where it is lagging, that we might understand your great love for us, that we might not harden our hearts when you rebuke and call us to repentance. We ask that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would renew our zeal, that you would keep us from, from apathy and self-satisfaction, and that we would seek all the things that we need, not in the things of this world, not in the applause of, of man, but that we would seek true riches in Christ, white garments, uh, spotless garments in Christ alone, salve for our eyes that we might truly see the glory of Christ. We'd find all those things, 
are found only in Christ. We pray that you would give us grace to continue to look for and to find all those things in Jesus Christ alone. And we do pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's in the condition spiritually of that church that is outside of Christ and so pitiable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked, that you would open their eyes even this morning, that they might see Christ in the glory of the gospel and look to him and have life in his name. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.